It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Charles Spurgeon once said, Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strengths. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary, as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, talk to us anytime at ChristianQuestions.com or our social media channels. Download some after-episode extras, such as our thorough Seeker Rewind show notes and our bonus Bible study questions available on our individual episode pages. And look for new videos for all ages every week at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what is on the table for today? Well, Rick, our question is, does my anxiety or depression invalidate my Christianity, part one? And our theme text is found in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Okay, so the question, does my anxiety or depression invalidate my Christianity? For many of us, daily life is a secret struggle. Some of us go through the motions of our daily routines while inwardly carrying overwhelming fear and anxiety. We don't want to share what we feel as it's not only embarrassing, it's impossible to describe. And for others of us, even our daily routines at times are themselves overwhelming. We feel as though we are thoroughly alone and relegated to a place of gloom and darkness. There seems to be no answer and often it feels like there's no hope. I'm describing anxiety and depression. While these challenges are incredibly common, they're also incredibly misunderstood. As Christians, we face these kinds of issues just like everyone else. The question is, what do we expect? Do we expect our faith to be like a magic pill that can make things better? Do we expect ourselves to be diminished in God's eyes because we can't feel our faith. What does God expect? What is possible for us to expect? Rick, May is Mental Health Awareness Month in the United States. For the next three weeks, we will be addressing mental health issues. Absolutely. And coming up, folks, today, in today's podcast specifically, anxiety and depression, as we mentioned, are deadly serious. To understand such a difficult subject, we interviewed two APRN psychiatrists. Throughout this entire episode, they will give us their professional viewpoint. They will bring us knowledge, expertise, and practicality. But most of all, most of all, they're going to bring us hope. Because once we can absorb the reality of these things and separate out the fiction, we can then find the pathway through these things. So please stay with us to our conclusion so you can receive all of the pieces of this incredibly difficult puzzle. And Jonathan, we have Julie with us to help manage this incredibly large task. How are you, Julie? I'm great, and what an important topic. This is going to be a great month to share these episodes with family and friends. 
And Rick, I've known you for a long time. And for not having mental illness, you've spent more time in a psych ward than anyone I know. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You've had an unusually high amount of experience with people around you with anxiety and depression, paranoia, bipolar, PTSD. And I'm looking forward to hearing some of your insights with the disclaimer that you're not a mental health professional. That's right. But this is what you've learned as a husband, father, friend, and minister. Yes. And uh, we will have with us Jane and Joan Landino, uh, and we'll get into their story in a, in a moment. So, folks, today our objective is to understand and demystify anxiety and depression. By so doing, we position ourselves to have a truth-based perspective. This enables us to embark on a godly and truth-based journey toward coping with and even overcoming the dominance that anxiety and depression can exert in our daily experiences. So again, to do this, we have the expertise of Jane and Joan Landino. Uh, I spoke to them a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to be bringing that conversation in pieces to you throughout this podcast. So let's first begin by getting to know a little bit about the two of them. So Jane, let's start with you. Just a little bit about your background. I've been a registered nurse since 1982, and then I became um, an advanced practice registered nurse, or APRN, in 2000. Uh, I went to Columbia University in New York, and my background includes some significant um, intensive care unit nursing as an RN, and then a lot of adult and substance abuse slash addiction as a nurse practitioner, or APRN. Okay. And Joan, what about you? I followed in Jane's footsteps two years later, became an RN in 1984. And despite everyone saying you had to do medicine first, I went straight into psychiatry. And in 2005, I became a nurse practitioner in psychiatry like Jane. And then I don't know why, I also have a degree in forensic science. So Rick, how do you know uh, Jane and Joan? Well, you know, they were referred to me by an APRN psychiatrist who I have done, um, seen do a lot of really wonderful work. And, and he had, I had asked him about helping us with this. And he was more, no, nah, I'd rather be behind the scenes doing what I do. But here, talk to these, these two women. And I'll tell you, knowing them has been a real, real eye-opener for me. And to me, it's, it's exciting to be able to, to bring their knowledge to our audience. And that's really what we're looking forward to doing here. So as we get started, and you can tell, their voices are almost identical, and the reason is they're identical twins. (laughs) (laughs) So there was that little challenge there, but um, they uh, have got a lot to tell us. Let's go directly into this next soundbite, and I ask them just basically, okay, explain what anxiety and depression look like. You know, what are they? And this is kind of a basic start. We're talking about anxiety and depression. They're two different things. What are they? This is Jane. They are both a disorder of the mind, of the thought process. And I don't like that word disorder, but we'll use it because we're working with in the realm of Western medicine. We like to say they're like twins, like we are. So sometimes we'll say they're like anxiety and depression is like Harvard and Yale or twins, where they're separate entities, but they're quite connected or they're like colleagues. 
Okay. Separate entities, a disorder of the mind, disorder I'm putting in air quotes. Joan, did you want to add something to that? I want to say that sometimes when somebody suffers from anxiety initially, they wonder why are their depressive symptoms later as well. They're going together and then vice versa. But when you think about, we like to always give a medical perspective because that's what people understand. That's what we all, we don't have stigma against medical disorders in this country. So if somebody breaks their arm, maybe they're going to start walking improperly because of the pain and then all of a sudden their back hurts. Something else is going to be connected or their neck. So we like to just say it's a neck up checkup. I think Jane thought of that. (laughs) All right. So so the two are different, but one, it sounds like, can often lead to the other then. Absolutely. Okay. All right. So they're different. What's the difference between someone who suffers from anxiety versus someone who suffers from depression? Well, this is Joan. When somebody suffers from anxiety and they don't know where this fear or distress is coming from, they often will get up and do things. You know, you like the, you like this friend. She or he might start cleaning for you. Uh, they're not going to be able to sit down and meditate. They're going to always be doing stuff on the run, always going. They're actually really good parents too, I think. <laughs> not Maybe not the actual easing the fear, but um, really everything is done. With depression, sometimes, maybe Jane's gonna comment on this more, sometimes the person can't even get out of bed. They can't even go for a walk. The simplest thing they keep, they're incapable of doing. So this is Jane. And then there's variations of those as well. So as anxiety is, you just witness the lion noticing you in the jungle and you have all those responses. And there's always this doing. But think about it. There's a few people that are going to freeze when they see that the lion just noticed them. Mm -hmm. So there are some people with anxiety where now Mm -hmm. they're frozen in a corner of their room or in their bed under the covers. And with depression, you can also have an odd presentation. I know we didn't really get into the definitions and we will. Depression can actually first present as an irritability and a restlessness. So they're doing as well. But when we think of the typical anxious person versus the typical depressed person, what Joan said pretty much follows is this fear and it's like a motor and they're doing, doing, doing. And depression is kind of zoning out of life. That makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, my wife has had anxiety for many, many years and she had an experience several years ago. We're not going to talk about that this here, but it, it helps me understand where she had an experience and suffered from PTSD. And depression set in afterwards, and there was a very different look, you know, from Absolutely. the anxiety. So, so re- really, a- anxiety can can kind of be on the run, on the go, keeping and going. But depression, generally, and I know there's always differences in, in how it expresses itself, but depression generally is kind of curling up and just not being able to even face life. Then, right? Okay. All right. So, in explaining, let me throw out the term clinical. If somebody says there's clinical depression or something, what does that mean in relation to anxiety and depression? Is there a normal? Is there a clinical? Help me understand that. So in order for someone to suffer from clinical depression, that's that's diagnosed because someone could never go to a doctor and have it, but nobody really knew it. Um, When we assess that person, there's um, at least a two-week period. It's often longer than that, where there's this profound sadness, this profound hurt and sometimes uh, an emptiness. And you have to have at least one of the following in addition to that, either thoughts of death and suicide or preoccupied with death, often your own, 
as well as a, a loss of interest in some of the things that you used to be interested in. Then there's also, you know, a few other symptoms that we look for, uh, too much sleep, not enough sleep, increased appetite, decreased appetite, feelings of exhaustion not explained by any other uh, medical term. And sometimes it comes with some physical pain not explained by anything else. And if you don't have a cluster of some of those symptoms, we're not going to diagnose you as clinically depressed. Gotcha. Gotcha. Boy, that's a lot of stuff right there. That's a lot of stuff going on. So, Rick, I didn't realize that anxiety is something that happens, but you're moving along. You're able to progress, but depression is more of a full stop. So how do you deal with someone who's in a state of depression? That's hard. That is is really, really hard to do. And as as somebody who who's been faced with that, uh, and again, as somebody who's not a professional, and I want to really emphasize that, it, it's kind of like pulling the cord on an old gas mower and trying to get it started if it's been sitting all winter. You know, that old mower just doesn't want, and you're just, and you're trying, and you're, you're trying to contribute and trying to contribute, and just nothing seems to work. And so really, the way to to help someone, to encourage someone in, in that situation is through small steps. Really, really, really small steps. I had an experience uh, a few years ago with someone, and uh, one of the things that we did is I gave him some small books. They're called Simple Truths, and they're, they're small books with a theme, you know, the theme of encouragement or theme of, of gratitude or theme of success, and, you know, would, would encourage, hey, read one page today. And then we'll talk later and you can tell me about it. Just one page. We're not asking for a chapter, just a page. Just something little to begin a process of growing through. So to me, the big key is start with small things and always, always, always be encouraging. So, you know, in Scripture, in Scripture we have, and there are more, but we're going to highlight very quickly three examples of individuals who are scriptural heroes um, who had very, very difficult times. Elijah the first, the mighty miracle-working prophet of God, he experienced life-shattering despair. 1 Kings 19, 3-5. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. He laid down and slept under the juniper tree. So Elijah just was so depressed and discouraged, he felt like his life was over. He said, God, just take my life from me. King David, King David felt the darkness of death, he describes it that way, as his own son Absalom turned on him and sought his life. This is Psalm 143, verses 3 to 4. For the enemy has persecuted my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me dwell in dark places like those who have long been dead. Therefore, my spirit is overwhelmed within me. My heart is appalled within me. He says, he made me dwell in the dark places like those who have long been dead. I mean, you see the imagery of the darkness that Jane and Joan were describing to us. And finally, our last example quickly here is the Apostle Paul. He, had ex- he was a mighty preacher of the gospel, but he had experiences that were so severe that he himself despaired of life. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. And this is from the Young's Literal Translation. 
For we do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, of our tribulation that happened to us in Asia, that we were exceedingly burdened above our power, so that we despaired even of life. That's a big statement. And so we have great examples of great heroes of faith who experienced anxiety and depression and things like that. So this, I think, should be somewhat encouraging for us. So at the end of each segment, we want to give you a piece, a few lines to help put it in perspective. And so, Julie, we're going to call these these segment-ending lines strength for the journey. What do we have to start with? Anxiety and depression are widespread, and even the greatest among us may grapple with them. So this means you are not alone. And not being alone is a huge, huge factor. And folks, that's the first thing to remember. Whatever it is, you are not alone. Life is hard all by itself and harder when anxiety and depression are added in. It's nice to know we're not alone. We now know what anxiety and depression are. What do they look like? How are they manifested? Our CQ crew is always giving you podcast extras, like our exclusive weekly newsletter that highlights featured episodes you may not have discovered yet, video content you may not have seen yet, CQ Rewind show notes, extra Bible study questions, and social media highlights, all packed into an easy-to-follow email inbox delivery. Sign up now by texting CQ Rewind to the number 22828. That's CQ Rewind with no spaces. Text to the number 22828. We Never sell or give away your information, and you can unsubscribe at any time. It's easy. So just send us a text and you'll be subscribed. You know, to be able to battle victoriously, we must know our enemy as well as know our allies. While our enemy is the invisible yet persuasive power of anxiety and depression, our highest ally is also invisible. The difference is that God is sovereign over all things. And his power is unmatched. And that's, a, that's a, a theme that we want to, as we gain knowledge and understanding from Jane and Joan, we want to repeat as Christians the sovereignty of God in our daily lives so that we can understand how he plays a role as they, Jane and Joan, tell us about the things we need to do, we need to understand, and we need to work on to deal with these issues of anxiety and depression. So we're going to go right into our next soundbite with Jane and Joan Landino. Uh, And they're going to be talking about treading water and fear that gets turned inward. Give me some feedback on, you know, somebody like me who, who has those feelings but certainly doesn't end up there that easily or that often versus how somebody copes when they are, are just sort of just trying to tread water and just, just not seeming to get, get anywhere. Mm-hmm. So this is Jane. Um, depression is not like normal sadness to life events. In, in fact, someone who's lost a spouse or child does not necessarily present with clinical depression because they're supposed to be sad with these great losses. Depression is is a little bit more insidious than that. It it's almost like it builds a, a fence or a wall around you, and the only thing inside there is all the negative e- emotions, that profound um, feeling of emptiness and sadness. But you know, there's this old saying that depression is anger turned inward. And having mm-hmm. having suffered from depression myself is why I feel like I can say this without people. Um, giving me hate mail. Part of my depression 
was so much anger, but because I didn't have the ability or the um, volition to, to express it, I feel like I planted anger every season and continually watered it and fertilized it to the point where it came out in so many ways that this insidious sadness, um, anyone actually could notice it. There's this funny story when I was in college and the drinking age was 18 back then. And <laughs> so I was in um, a bar, I didn't even drink, but I would order uh, I think a little bit of brandy and sip on it like it was NyQuil. And I got so excited. This happened to me three times where a nice looking young man, I believed was coming to, to say hello to me because I was probably uh, attractive, right? Instead, these three men at three different times in my life leaned in and said something like, it can't be that bad, can it? <laughs> or, you know you know what I mean? And it was on your face. So it was written all over my face. And that was from untreated depression for years and years and years. And then, of course, I go into psych nursing and most of the staff could see it and would make, you know, comments. But nobody, we don't want to wait that long to treat people. We want to get it done earlier. With that, and, you know, you, you having the experience is a very valuable piece to this whole thing because you can see it from the inside out. I look at it from the outside in and I, and I, and I desperately try to understand, but you can't, you've been there, you've lived it. So, Rick, wow, that's a lot. Do you generally see more anger or fear in the people that you've had the experience of helping? For me, in my own experience, and, and you know, my experience is limited, uh, but, but fear is the bigger thing. You know, anger usually seems to come out when there is some kind of trauma that, you know, you have this, this, this knee-jerk reaction response to, and the anger grows, and, and, and it, it gets kind of out of control, and then you're in like, uh, I forget it was Jane or Joan, you see how much alike they sound? <laughs> it drives me nuts, but they're both excellent. They're both so wonderful. But, you know, the, 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 the point of the story was that she kept planting and, and watering her anger and did not do anything to draw away from it. So anger is not always a symptom, but irrational fear is the overriding factor in in most cases, again, in my own personal experience. And the fear is huge, and it's out of proportion. And we're, we're going to develop that a little bit as but, we but what's the what is, what is the fear? What are they afraid of? Oh, man. I mean, that's the hard part, because the fears are not necessarily rational, but they're very real. And we're going to get into that just okay. ne next next soundbite from Jane and Joan. We're going to get into that a little bit more. But that's a really important question. What are they afraid of? Let's let's hold that. Okay, let's do a couple of scriptures, and then we're going to get back to Jane and Joan. A basic tool for helping, okay? Now, whether you're the one suffering or the one who cares about the one suffering, this next scripture is a good beginning, a good thought process to put in our minds. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the basic principle of being helpful, of wanting to stimulate another individual toward love, toward good deeds, toward goodness. So keep that in mind. Folks, if you, you have someone in your life suffering from anxiety or depression, 
have the attitude of wanting to stimulate them toward love and good deeds. You know, we talked about allies at the very beginning of this segment, you know, and, and we have to find our greatest ally. And for a Christian, there's a place to look for that. And this next scripture sounds like a command that can come across as overwhelming and even out of reach to somebody who might be suffering from anxiety and or depression. Philippians 4.4. 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Hey, Jonathan, did you skip some of the words in that? Doesn't that scripture say, rejoice only when things are going well in the Lord? Uh, no, Julie, it <laughs> says always. Uh, n- even if things aren't going well, besides the good times when we always rejoice, we, we need to rejoice then too. That's the hard part. Well, and, 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 you know, and rejoicing isn't being bubbly over, over with happiness. Okay, rejoicing is a state of being, and that's important. Let's look at the context that the Apostle Paul wrote this in, because if we look at the context, we can see things more clearly. Philippians 1, 12 to 14, listen carefully, he's describing what's happening to him. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So the Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, when he is in on house arrest, and he's probably got a Roman guard chained to him 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's why rejoicing is not this bubbling over, wow, things are so wonderful, but it's that sense that God has got control. Basically, Paul was isolated, unable to preach or teach, unable to travel and encourage, unable to nourish the countless brotherhood that he had established in Christ. He's older now, he's worn and has been beaten, he's been whipped, he's been scarred, he's been scorned, he's been shipwrecked, he's been stoned and left for dead. Knowing all of this, does this not seem like an unattainable command? See, when you see Paul having been through this and says, and he's saying rejoice, what he's telling us is this is a secret to surviving the impossible, is to rejoice, to have that faith in something bigger. And that's why we say God is sovereign. Let's look to God as our chief ally. Let's get back to Jane and Joan. And, and you know, Julie, you were talking about fear and what, what is it that the average individual with these kinds of things, what are they afraid of? Well, let's listen because Jane and Joan are going to help us understand that. What do you do, A, if you are inside, stuck to find a way to get help, or B, if you are that person on the outside who loves this person who doesn't want them to suffer and you want to reach out? How do you do that? Okay, this is Jane because I'll do part A because Joan has to do part B. <laughs> um, do anything. Do absolutely anything. And, of course, five of, you know, the six things you try and you hate five, hopefully the sixth thing you'll like. One of the things I never did was listen to others because, of course, I thought that I knew myself the best. And if somebody made a comment to me uh, in, within my family, other than those cute guys at the bar, I would tear them uh, to shreds verbally. I would just say, you know, you don't know anything. Blah. I was very, very disrespectful. Remember, it was anger turned inward and it presented in all different kinds of ways, sometimes loving ways as well. But what I would like to say is do anything, go, you know, talk to a friend, family, uh, a clergy person, uh, pick up a book. Uh, So, okay, so Joan, what about if you're on the outside looking in? Joan, I think you got cut off right in the middle of the sentence where you're saying you're asking your mother about 
the future, you know, she couldn't tell you what the right, future was. Right. Can you can you so kind of what pick I up- want to say all all anxiety is based on fear, whether it's rational or irrational. And I started asking her um, to help me with my worry. And she kept saying, but what are you worried about, Joan? I couldn't even come up with something. And I said, I can make something up. Please help me. What I was trying to say so from somebody coming on the outside looking in, mine is irrational. I just don't know that yet. The person who uh, did some milestones like getting your license or going on your first job interview at age 16 uh, or getting into college or something like that, you know what some anxiety is. And if you could sit with the person and say, you know, when this happened, I was a bit anxious too. Instead of what most people do, and I, I've done it too, try to fix it. Yeah, It's unfixable because I don't even know what it is that I'm anxious about. It's so embedded. And it goes to say the same as what Jane had said about depression. Don't wait that long. There's, I didn't even get help until I was 35. And I know better. I was already a nurse. Yeah. <laughs> So, and that, that's really important, uh, that, that one small phrase, don't try to fix it. And that is, that is the knee-jerk reaction. Well, can't you just think about something else? Can't you just, you know, rationalize your way through well, one plus one does equal two? But in the anxious mind, one plus one doesn't mean anything. It's, it's just, it's like a, a jumble. So if a suffering person can't describe what's really happening, their view of the world is so distorted, their descriptions are are different from reality, how can a professional help them? Like, what do you do, Rick, when you know there's more to the story than the person's able to tell? Do you go with them to their appointments? You know, and and Julie, that's that's a really important part of this thing, because the irrationality is what makes this so difficult. It makes this difficult on all kinds of levels. First, judging from the outside in, you know, it's like you almost want to shake somebody and say, come on, really? Right. But this is, this is legit in their minds. This is the, the, the reality. And so what I found through trial and error with several different experiences, and again, I am no professional. I'm just somebody who cares about people and who several people in my life have come and asked for help. And, and, you know, in my experience, what I learned is to be available to speak the truth to those who can do the healing. You've got to listen and then you've got to let the professionals apply the fix. We can't fix it, but we can help the person who has these issues that they can't even explain get in front of somebody. And I have found it to be, whenever possible, really important to be able to be at an appointment, an initial appointment, or to be able to... If you're on the inside, if you're a, quote, family member, and as a pastor, you know, I've been trusted by many individuals with this to be a, quote, family member where the psychiatrist or the social worker or the therapist or whoever is willing to talk to you back and forth, where I've had private conversations with them and said, okay, the story they told you, let me tell you the rest. Let me tell you the reality behind that because there's a confusion, and that's been really helpful. So a big part of this is stepping up and when you know that there's more to the story, let those who understand what to do know as much as you possibly can of what's real. And it has to be done with tact and it has to be done with respect and it has to be done with caring. But that can be a really big step in all of this. So you can explain it objectively based on what you know to be true because you're grounded in reality. Right. 
And therefore, the professional can do the fixing, not, you know, it's not all on you that you've got to fix them. Right. No, and forget it. If you tell me I have to fix it, I'm out because it's beyond what we know. Okay. You leave it to those who do know. So let's let's go back now to some scripture. Uh, you know, Paul. We we were listening to you know Paul rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. His emphatic plea to rejoice in the Lord is a plea to recognize God, who's greater than all. By so doing, we can begin to find a source of comfort in the fact that God personally knows who we are. Okay, we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter one thirty nine. We're going to go through several verses throughout the rest of the podcast each section of the podcast. And this psalm was actually brought to my attention by my wife, by Trish, who has had anxiety. And this is one of the psalms that she has always gone to. And folks, when you listen to this, you're going to see why. Psalm 139, Jonathan, let's do verses 1 through 6. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. There is such a comfort in this. God, you searched me, you know me, you know when I sit down, when I rise up, you know my thoughts, you know my words. I mean, each verse, each of these thoughts in these verses is like a warm blanket of comfort that says God knows you, God loves you, God cares for you, and God wants the best for you, and he's with you in these things. So Julie, let's wrap up this segment. What's our strength for the journey that we can glean from what we just talked about? God knows our heart, our doings, and our minds. He knows our patterns of activity and rest, and he knows the words we speak. God knows us, and in all of this, God protects and encourages us. Rejoice in the Lord. God knows, God protects, and God encourages. Don't lose heart. It's so, so important. The best starting point is to reach up to our God. Honoring him is the first step to looking outside of ourselves. God knowing us does not mean everything is now better. What must we accept and understand? Are you just getting started in your Bible studying? Or are you a weekly listener looking for more after the podcast? Go to ChristianQuestions.com, then click on the Bible study tab to see our concise companion Bible study questions. The pathway through the tangled brush of our own heart and mind is laden with snags and scratches. Believing in God's all-knowing love encourages us to navigate through this disorder. If kept vibrant, this belief can produce the beginnings of positive and transformative behavior. This belief can produce the beginnings of positive and transformative behavior. Jonathan, we have a, a, a quick quote from Max Lucado. Belief precedes behavior. Well, that's a quick quote, <laughs> but it's a powerful statement. Go ahead. And Rick, uh, what you just said made me think of an urgent appeal for help, which is like SOS. So maybe we should change that from SOS to SOG, sovereignty of God. <laughs> we should turn our minds to God for help to navigate us through our difficulties. Yeah, SOG, SOG. 
seek our God, <laughs> the sovereignty of our God. It, you know, and, and look, this is for folks, look, Christians suffer from these things like everybody else. We need to be able to understand that God knows this and can help us to work through these things, but we have to have faith, and we have to do the things, the work necessary to get there. Max Lucado wrote a book called Anxious for Nothing, and very, 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 very well written from a Christian perspective, Anxious for Nothing by Max Lucado. Um, Again, my wife Trish talks about this book, has read this book several times, and it's been a real encouragement to her. So let's go to, again, with the sovereignty of God in mind, Jonathan, let's go to Proverbs 21.30. There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. Okay. God is bigger than everything else. There's nothing that stands against him. Let's go back to Philippians. We did Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. What's Philippians 4.5? Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. The gentleness of your spirit. This humility that Paul is talking about. Remember, he's on house arrest. He's chained to a guard. This humility can open up to us learning about our challenges rather than fighting with them. And part of dealing with anxiety and depression is learning, understanding the truth about them, and instead of fighting with them, we fight through them. Big difference. Let's go back to uh, Jane and Joan Landino from the interview, talking about, they are APRN psychiatrists, and talking about... This is a big part of it. Psychological issues versus physiological issues. Is anxiety, is depression, are they psychological, physiological? What, how does that happen? This is Jane. Um, they're both. Just like someone who suffers from a heart attack is more likely to then have depressive symptoms after because when you know, I often say the neck, uh, the, the head and is connected to the rest of the body via this thing called the neck. And a lot of times we think that anxiety, depression, or any other mood disorder is really just a psychological phenomenon. But remember, I had mentioned that some people who suffer from depression can also have physical symptoms. They can have body aches. There's a saying, depression hurts. So everything is really connected. So whether or not my depression happened because I got married, I moved to another state, and I got a very uh, brand new job that was very stressful. So those three major stressors, I had a major depressive episode. So they started with the stressors in my life, and it started as a thinking problem, and it affected me psychologically. But then there are physical changes in the brain. Your body will always work together and they'll change pathways in the brain. Those pathways will go down to your heart. Here's a famous one. Um, <laughs> I, had a, I had a client who was uh, referred to me with the beginnings of dementia from the neurologist. And I knew that I'm supposed to assess the person for depression and possibly medicate. And I did it, but kind of in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, this isn't going to work. And the patient's mental status improved greatly. So they were suffering with all these forgetful moments, not being able to play the card game they used to be able to play. And I gave them an antidepressant and the person got significantly better. So it's very, very connected, this thing called the brain and the rest of the body. You know, by saying it's both, it's not psychological or physiological. And the idea that it can start out with as a thinking issue and then create a physiological issue 
th- that's an eye opener to me because I never thought of it that way. And because, you know, a lot of times, again, in my own very, very, very limited experience, it's described that, okay, there's a, there's a little bit of a wiring issue kind of in your, in your mind that we want to work on and help connect more fully so you can be able to cope and deal with and, and see things differently. But the idea that it can start out in your thinking process and kind of create that, that's, a, that's, a, that's alarming. So, Rick, it seems like a big stressor uh, can when 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 an attack or or an episode can come on is during times of change. So people can be more susceptible during a liminal period between one thing and the other. And knowing this might help for preparations. And I've heard you say trust the eyes of the person, but what does that mean? And and how do we do that without being judgmental of what they're going through? Okay, for for me, and that's a that's a statement that. I I repeat to myself is trust the eyes of the person with the issue to show you what the reality looks like. So in other words, when somebody is in whatever it is, but be it because of physiological or psychological circumstances, and they are in this place of fear and, and, and torment even trust what they tell you as their reality. And that helps you to understand where they are. And instead of looking at it and say, um, you know, come on, get over it. Look at it and say, man, that's huge. I can, I, man, if I felt, I, I, would, I would feel the same way. I would have this overwhelming fear as well. And identify. So trust the eyes of the person to tell you what's really happening from their perception. That's when I say trust the eyes. That's what I mean. Let them describe what they see so that you can now be somebody who can help them and encourage them and and maybe guide them toward those who could actually really, really help them validate what they're saying. Next week in part two, we're going to feature an interview that we had with a very talented young singer who's gone through anxiety attacks. She's a listener who approached us with uh, some things that she's going through, and her name is Kylie Odetta, and you don't want to miss that because she's just amazing, and her advice is fantastic. But one of the things that she said is, if you can't be empathetic, at least be sympathetic. Le- help them, help the person find the help that they need, and it won't necessarily be you, but have compassion. Right. So I think that's good for me to remember because I don't encounter a lot of people with mental illness that I know of. But I want to be compassionate and I want to be helpful. Yeah, and that's that's the real key is to be compassionate so we can be helpful. Without compassion, there is no help because you're not going to be able to 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 connect with the individual. So let's do a little bit of scripture, then we'll go back to Jane and Joan. So whether our challenges were always with us or they came to us, so whether they're physiological or psychological, we still have the teachings of Jesus that provoke steady and daily focus. And this is important. Matthew six thirty three and 34. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So Jesus' message is really simple. Live in the present. The future is not your jurisdiction, and I say that to everybody all the time, mental illness or not, because I've learned that we need to live in the present and leave the future to God. Well, Rick, what about if you're stuck in the past? Someone mentioned to me recently the idea of a mental loop. That's when you 
replay events over and over in your mind and you build up anxiety and stress. It becomes obsessive and exhausting. We get stuck in a certain line of thought. How do we get past that? That's hard. That Jonathan, that's hard because what happens is when you get stuck in the past like that, what you're doing is you're replaying the past again and again and again and the past becomes your present and then that past becomes your future and there's no way out because you only have one thing. And so in, in, in order to be able to get out of that, again, it has to be the, the power of suggestion. Again, professional help is really important, but if that's not available, or maybe as a pastor or a friend or a family member, you could talk about redirecting your thinking, looking towards some other things. When you begin to think this way, change the ending. That's a big thing. Change the ending of a thought to, uh, to you know, going down that rabbit hole to something that but I know this is not real, and the reality I live is actually much better. And even if you don't believe it, by changing the ending, you can begin to chip away at that. So that's a, this, this is tough stuff. And folks, a lot of people go through this, and we have to. Those of us who don't, we really need to understand the need for compassion and reaching out just to be supportive because we can't fix it. We can't. Let's go back to uh, Jane and Joan again. And now we're going to get into an area that's really important. What about stigma? Let's talk about the stigma, okay? And then let's talk about the treatment. Because in my mind, and again, in my very, very, very limited experience, the hard thing to get to was it's okay if things are like this. It's okay. You're not weird. You're not different. You're not... Um, to be shunned by society as somebody less than everyone else. How, how do you how do you deal with those those feelings and reactions? Well, initially, John? oh, it's John. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> initially, you have a fear. There we go again of telling people about it for fear that you're going to be looked at as if you're crazy or yeah. what is wrong with you. You know, you're less than a person, and you keep striving to be like the well well adjusted other people, and you're incapable of it. So you isolate. So, and there's where the depression comes in. But um, the the nowadays, I just say that if you broke your arm, wouldn't you go to the doctors? If you needed eyeglasses, you can't see. You'd go to the doctor. If you're sad and don't know what it is, why didn't you go to the doctor? If I'm anxious and my mommy can't tell me why, why didn't I? So I think it's a stigma of society or society's induced stigma. What does somebody do? when they realize that and, and have to face that, because it looks like a big mountain. You know, the, the stigma looks like a big mountain. Practical input from the standpoint of the person going through it and from those around them, what can we do or say, whether you're either in it or around it, to help just put that away from you? This is Jane. Let me just start with one of the reasons I didn't seek treatment uh, wasn't because of stigma, initially it was because i didn't even know i had depression i just thought i was the shy kid i was labeled shy a lot but then when i did get treatment i actually was unaware that people would stigmatize me for it which i found interesting and some of those people were not who you would think some of them were your colleagues so even in the profession there's this Shh, don't 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 say anything hmm. or even worse what we've experienced where there's many, many people in the profession that pay cash to a therapist or someone or a prescriber because they don't want it on their uh, records, their health insurance. They don't they want, don't a want it trail. there. Wow. 
you know, regarding stigma, on one hand, it seems like everybody these days goes to a therapist. I was surprised to find out that two teenagers in my circle have therapists to deal with high school stress and anxiety. So it's a normal thing these days, not stigmatized. But yet, let's say I'm at church and I know someone who's suffering, um, maybe they're bipolar or they have an anger condition. Personally, I'm a little intimidated and I'm probably not going to go up to them because I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to set them off. So I'll avoid them. Now, is that stigmatizing them? Am I thinking of, you know, straight jackets and, you know, the way mental hospitals were portrayed on in the movies? What am I doing wrong? Well, well, you know what? And, and, and to be frank, yeah, th- there is stigmatization with that kind of treatment. Now, now, it's not on purpose. Okay, that's the first thing. Let me t- explain. My first experience going to a psych ward to support somebody was about 41, 42 years ago, something like that. I was 19 or 20, somewhere in that area. Somebody who was close to me, my own age, lost it. And they were there. And when I went to see them, I had no idea what to expect. And when you talk, and I walked into the to, to the to the common room, and there are people literally walking around in straight jackets. There's there's a lot of mumbling going on. There's people in a straight jacket sitting in a chair, kind of sideways drooling. I mean, this this is what I saw 40 years ago, and it made a huge impact on me. Like my friend can't be like that. I didn't understand, and of course, medicine has come so far in those in the last forty years. So the stigmatizing comes not necessarily on purpose. And we say when we say the words mental illness, there is the shudder that goes through us because nobody wants to be considered mentally ill. Yet we're okay with having diabetes. Well, we're not okay with that. You know what I mean? <laughs> having, right, or a broken arm, sure, or, or cancer. You know, I'm fighting cancer. I'm fighting this. I'm fighting that. Fighting mental illness is exactly the same thing. And here's the thing. When you go to church and someone you know is bipolar or has an anger issue or something, and you say, well, you know, I don't want to set them off, why do you think they're at church? Do you think they're at church so they can act out on that? Or are they there to gain encouragement? What I would say is assume they're there to gain encouragement and try to be that person who will smile. And even if it's a 30-second conversation, say something uplifting, good to see you today. Hey, you look good today. Hey, I was thinking about this scripture and I thought about you. I wanted to read it to you. Would you rather be a blessing or would you rather assume that three or 4% chance that they might go off on something? See, to me, let's attempt to be encouraging. And you have no idea the strength that somebody can gain from those little conversations, from somebody looking at them with eyes to say that, no, you know what? You're not different. You're not weird. You're here. I love you. You don't have to spend the rest of your day with them, but encourage them, help them along the way. So, you know, again, let's get back to some scripture, okay? We want to go back to Psalm 139. Not only does God know who we are, He knows every state of mind and heart we go to. In Psalm 139, it continues with the high highs and the low lows of David's mental state in dealing with his challenges. This is very poetic. Psalm 139, 7 through 12, we'll take it in three pieces. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is the grave, behold, you are there. Okay, so, you know, if he's speaking poetically, if I was up in heaven, you'd be there. If I made my bed in the grave, you'd be there. In other words, God is everywhere where our mind will take us. It kind of almost sounds 
a little bit bipolar there. High highs and low lows. Next couple of verses. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I fly away like a bird, you're still there. I mean, the point is, in our minds, these are the things that happen. These are the places that we go when we're, we're trying to get away from our, our issues. And the point is, God is still there. And wherever we end up trying to hide, he is still there. Verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. In other words, God can penetrate through the darkness as though it was the noonday sun. And it's telling us he loves us. God is bigger than any state of mind or heart. Those are the things that as Christians we need to hold on to. And Psalm 139 gives us the sense of God's overwhelming power and love on our behalf. So, Julie, as we... we we, we wrap up. The, go ahead. I, I'm sorry, but no, I've never seen that verse 12 before. I, we just have to reread it. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. That is huge. I would. It's huge for me, and I'm not suffering where my life is in darkness. That's something that I think people can just hold on to and repeat over and over again, because God is bigger. God is sovereign over all things, and his power is unmatched. And it's not saying that you're miraculously taken out of things. It's saying you have to go through the work, but God can be with us. Julie, strength for the journey as we wrap up this segment. God not only unequivocally knows who we are, he knows the pathways and tendencies of our hearts and minds. There is no place you can go in your fear or darkness that is beyond his loving and protective reach. No place we can go that's beyond God's loving reach. We need to understand his sovereignty in the life of those of us who are trying to follow God through Christ. You know, repetition of fundamental truths is an important practice. We need to develop muscle memory for our brains. It is comforting to know God truly knows his children. But if what if we feel like we cannot reach him? We're rolling out new series content this year. Multiple episodes on one topic over consecutive weeks, such as what do we do when the Bible seems to contradict itself? Go to ChristianQuestions.com and search for Bible Contradictions to see the full series of episodes and stay tuned for more new episodes and more new series releases at ChristianQuestions.com. A relationship with God is a two-way street. With his love, while his love is unconditional, his blessings, his deep appreciation of us does require our efforts. As long as we reach for him, he can begin to bless us. When we struggle with challenges of the mind, this reaching up is rarely an instinctual response. So we have to work on developing the habit of reaching up. Even though we can't simply turn off our anxiousness, we can turn on prayer and thanksgiving. Back to Philippians chapter 4, Jonathan, this time verse 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Okay, it's a simple, simple process. The habit of sincere prayer is a habit that reveals conviction. 
conviction precedes true action. We have to be convicted before we truly take the right kinds of steps. So you have to understand Christian growth is not a—I'm sorry, Christian growth is a process. It's not a black and white question, okay? It's a process. You've got to run away from the perspective that that says— um, that, that, that is what I would call failure thinking, where you get stuck in, I can't, therefore, I'm a failure. We can fall down, and we can get up, and we can fall down, and we can get up, and that's what the scriptures tell us again and again and again. So let's go back to Jane and Joan, uh, and this is going to take a, a few minutes, and, but it's very, very valuable, because it really this all comes down to treatment. What about treatment for those things that we have to deal with when we are looking at uh, mental illness and anxiety and depression and things of that nature. So what about, what about treatment? And I know it's going to look very different for, for everybody, but again, the, the, the imagery of treatment is, especially if you go to a, 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 an APRN psychiatrist, is you're laying on a couch and, you know, and all of this stuff. What does treatment actually really look like? So this is Jane. Um, if we back up and, and go to a different kind of counselor as your first step, with a social worker, a licensed practical counselor, etc., um, a, a clergy person, um, there's something like talk therapy. And so the person like myself that was bottling up anger so much that I was acting out in other ways uh, can, can vent all of these injustices that I feel. And that's wonderful. And those people though, when it's all done, and that could be very helpful purging, but the thought of purging for 10 years or 20 years, and what I'd like to say is even four years, maybe one or two years, after a while, if you don't get uh, dock that boat and, and step off onto land again, you're just going to be in a cycle of negativity, which remember the physiological part of your body will cooperate and remap things and you may end up with worse problems. So there's talk therapy, it's very, very helpful and that can actually resolve a lot of issues for people. There's even cases of people being severely depressed getting through it with just talk therapy. And then when you come to the prescribers, uh, we assess for medication, um, these foreign molecules, and sometimes they work very, very well. Um, one of my experiences was each time I was on a medicine, I thought, oh, well, this is what life can be like. But it wasn't until the last medicine where I feel that I'm in full remission, where I now know, know what it's like to be I like to say alive and well, but those first initial meds, they, you know, some worked extremely well on my anxiety, some helped my insomnia, some helped the, my negative thinking. Um, but then there's more than medicine and there's more than talk therapy. There's more than medicine. So something called cognitive behavioral therapy, which I find very boring because you might even get homework and I was, I didn't want to do that. Um, so here, a musician shared uh, with me that depression is like learning and oh, getting treatment for depression is like learning an instrument. He learned an instrument at age seven and by high school, uh, he had already been in, ingrained in this instrument and his high school music teacher said that you're holding the instrument wrong. 
you're playing it incorrectly and you will never get better than today. You're not even breathing correctly when you're blowing into this instrument. And he was so distraught because that's what he wanted to be was a clarinetist that he learned and he said it took one full year. He learned to breathe differently, hold the instrument differently. He called it arduous, painful, physically painful and emotionally painful. It was so hard and he worked at it every day. He said that was my cognitive behavioral therapy. And now he is a professional clarinetist. and wow. plays. So that I find so interesting. That really sunk in that no wonder insurance companies pay for CBT. It works. But a lot of people have, including myself, I wanted a pill. I didn't want to work on my fear and anxiety. You told me to meditate. I'll break the tape. I'll grind it up. <laughs> this is Jane adding on to what um, Joan is talking about because there was a, a study done, it's probably 30 years ago now, on all the serotonin medicines, like from Prozac to Zoloft and ongoing. And what they found, and these, they were looking at treat, treating depression and anxiety. What they found was kind of disturbing and they were afraid for the public. They found that only about 50% of people with depression and anxiety responded to these medicines. Behind the scenes, that number went to 30%. Wow. So imagine if we told the American public that you get depression and anxiety, you go get treatment and only 30% of you are gonna get better. Imagine that if that was a cancer diagnosis. And so there are other things in psychiatry and if we utilize them, people can get better, kind of like myself. So one of the things, remember, I suffered from a lot of depression and it took my girlfriend who was one of those people that I respected what came out of her mouth <laughs> and she said something to me and I at first wanted to throw her off the balcony we were standing on but then I thought, well, you know, Jane, this is the third floor and she might die and you're going to go to jail. <laughs> and <laughs> what thinking. she said to me <laughs> was, Jane, have you ever considered being grateful for what you have rather than being ungrateful for everything? Now, I hope you could see how I wanted to throw her off the balcony. <laughs> uh, but I, tr I really respected her opinion of me and I took that seriously. And lo and behold, I found that I was very ungrateful for everything. And the other thing I didn't do was I didn't join community. Um, I was very content with having my family and my two friends and the medicine that I was taking. But I knew through self-help books and uh, self-help uh, groups in psychiatry that there's this thing called service to others and giving back. So first you vent, then you try to own up to your part in everything, but you have to give back to community as well. So if you're, and this is me, I'm not talking about everyone, but if you're a self-absorbed, angry individual, <laughs> I don't think you're gonna get better on Lexapro, which was a, an amazing med for me, but it did not put me into remission. So, Medication, yeah, great, but work. And yes. just like with anything else, and again, you know, the, the breaking of an arm or, or, or something like that, there's that the therapy of the physical therapy of getting it back into working order. That's really what you're saying. It's no different because it's with your mind. 
So Rick, what about medication? You know, isn't the Bible enough? Won't a prayer for healing be enough? And I want to be really clear because it sounds like we're going to be saying on this program that you can't just say to someone, pray harder and believe in Jesus, and this will all go away. So are you pro-medication or against? Okay, <laughs> that's a that's a that's a big question, and I am very much pro medication. Absolutely, in my own experiences, I have seen the wonders of medication in a lot of different circumstances. Taking the edge off of paranoia, taking the edge off of the highs and lows, uh, helping with somebody who went because of a of a traumatic experience went into a deep depression, and and that medication helping them be able to find the space to grow back into their own life. Every single experience, though, that I tell you, that medication is wonderful, the individual had to work. And medication is not an excuse to not have faith, to not do the work, to not use the tools. It is simply a tool that helps you go through things. So in some cases, and as a matter of fact, Julie, you mentioned Kylie's interview for, for next week. Uh, Kylie was one who didn't use medication and was able to overcome some very deep and dark anxiety. It's, so it's not always the answer. Everybody doesn't have to have medication, but in, and that's why you get professionals involved, because they can help you understand what, they, what you need and what you don't need. And medication also is a very uh, inexact science in my own experience because you try something, and Jane or Joan was alluding to this, and it may work okay, but it may have some side effects, and you try something else, and then you try something else. So yes, medication... Christianity is not a ticket to have magical healing. That's not part of Christianity. It simply isn't. God's place is really important. Faith and spirituality and looking up is really important because it gets us outside of ourselves. And God's blessing is bigger than our trials. But sometimes we need that medication, just like the person with the broken arm or the person who has diabetes or cancer has to take medication to deal with it. So yes, absolutely medication is appropriate, but it has to be administered in a way that a professional really understands and you're willing to do your work. Make sense? Absolutely. Okay. All right. So let's go to a couple of scriptures now, you know, in, in terms of putting this back to the Christian perspective and making our effort to overcome our challenges. We always have to remember that God does know the goodness of our hearts and our soul. He sees through the anger and the fear, and he reaches for us. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. For the word of the Lord is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And Rick, um, I have a question. I have a family member who has mental illness and depression. It is frustrating for those around her because she uses her illness as an excuse to behave improperly. Uh, she will say, I can do this or that because I have mental disabilities, or they can't talk to me like that because I'm entitled to do what I want because I have mental illness. She has many excuses and tries to justify that negative behavior. So how do you deal with someone like this? Oh, sure. <laughs> Jonathan, that's hard. That's hard because, you know, sometimes, and just like anything else in life, 
aside from mental illness, we can take we can take a physical disability and do exactly the same things. We can take you know being being born without a limb or a deformed limb or something and say, well, because of this, I can't. Because of this, I'm entitled. Because of this, I I I I I. And that's the problem. It's all about me. It's all about I. It's all about bringing the world to me. The key to dealing with anything like this, be it physical, mental, emotional, is to be learn how to be outside of me and to focus on those things outside. How do you deal with that? With great patience. But you know, can you fix it? No. Can you make a suggestion? Yeah. I mean, look, a practical suggestion might be, okay, I understand that. But do you like being that way? Have you ever thought of anything that you could do to make a little bit of that a little bit better? Just a you know, tiny suggestion, don't push it, and then move on. But that's hard, Jonathan. That's hard because the healing has to begin in our own determination. And if we're not determined to rise above where we are with anything, we're not going to change. Let's go back to Psalm 139. That's much more, that's very encouraging. God knows who we are. He knows every state of mind and heart we go to. Further than things, these things, he also knows what we're made of. He literally knows what we're made of. The incomprehensible complexity of humanity is a testimony to God's love. Psalm 139, again, verses 13 through 18. For you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I give thee thanks. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. You know, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. The complexity of the human form is is breathtaking. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordered for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So this is a poetic reference to the fact that, look, we're made from the minerals of the earth. You know, God knew humanity because he made man from the dust of the ground. I mean, that's the power of how God knows us. And then finally, 17 and 18, go ahead. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. So it gives us a sense that God is incomprehensibly bigger than everything in our lives and can be in control, and he can be our greatest ally if we would just let him. Julie, wrapping up this segment, what's our strength for the journey? There can be no better source of strength when facing our biggest challenges than turning to our Creator, His everlasting arms will hold us, and his eternal wisdom will guide us if we let them. If we let them. And that's just like your example, Jonathan. If we let the help come to us, it can help us. Managing anxiety and depression is like many other things. We need to be willing to do the work consistently. What is our highest expectation? What can we expect if our issues are an ingrained part of our being? If you love our podcast, show us some love on social media. Search for our handle at CQ Bible Podcast, or just search for Christian Questions on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and Twitter. Now back to our discussion. We 
We've often said that chaos creates clarity, and this is true for the one who can see chaos unfold from a factual perspective. What is also true is that anxiousness is the consequence of perceived chaos. When we're unable to separate fact from fiction, only insecurity will follow. And for uplifting social media, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Pinterest as CQ Bible Podcast. And we asked in our Facebook group, how should Christians deal with depression? Does depression or anxiety invalidate your walk with Jesus? So great discussion there. We received a lot of feedback and a lot of back and forth. And I wanted to read a short quote from a listener named Owen. Um, Among other things, he said this, God does not ask us to feel sad, guilty, dirty, or in despair. He tells us we are loved. We are unrighteous, but redeemable. We are nothing without him, but we aren't without him. He made us, afflicted us, redeemed us, has great plans for us. And though we don't deserve it, we can do all things through him. We fight depression by allowing God to work in us to will and to do his good pleasure. He takes responsibility for teaching us how to want to move towards the light, and he uses the darkness of depression to help us find that will and tap into his strength. Wow. Well written, well said, well said. So, you know, it's a matter of folks, what are you going to do with what you see? I mean, that's really what this is all about. You know, these, these, these sound bites from Jane and Joan and the, the education they're giving us, it's wonderful. But what are we going to do with it to understand that this is, this is something that we can grow up and grow through? So let, let's get back to the Philippian scriptures. Julie, thanks for that. To label our highest expectations, we need to review these Philippian scriptures in their entirety, okay? Adding the last verse, which will conclude the process. So Jonathan, Philippians 4, 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the new peace. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And isn't that what we all want, especially when dealing with things like anxiety and depression? Don't we want peace? And this is talking about the peace, not just peace, but the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God's peace can guard our hearts. The only thing that can get through this protection is ourselves from the inside, okay? We can let him help us guard if we are willing to do the work that's necessary. So back to Jane and Joan Landino one last time as we look at them dealing with um, just just wrapping things up, and I asked them some very specific questions uh, in this last bit. And this is a biblically-based podcast, and mm-hmm. our objective is to be able to speak to the Christian community or people who are you know, around the edges of the Christian community and say, look, the Scriptures really do have, A, a lot of answers for a lot of the things that are difficult in life, but also, B, the other aspect, the other side of the issue is there are many Christians that are going to tell you that, look, if you have anxiety and depression, pray and God will take care of it. And that's damaging. 
because if we've got a physiological thing that is happening to us, God's not going to take care of all of your physiological issues because you believe in him. And so that's one of the reasons we I wanted to talk to you guys about this in such depth, because we want to avoid, like you're saying, getting overly confident in just medication. Give me a magic bullet and everything's going to be great. And also the, well, I've got God, so I'm all set. And, you know, in one of my own personal experiences in in being in a, visiting with someone in a psych ward and their initial response to their issues were, well, this is Satan. And the the psychiatrist is sitting there and I'm her pastor. And, you know, the psychiatrist is is sitting there and we're talking and I said, well, wait, actually, that's not the case. And when I, I gently try to explain that, and I use the analogy of sometimes in our minds, there's a wiring issue. And when, when I finished explaining it, to her, the psychiatrist looked at me like with this incredible sigh of relief because the message was, give these people a chance to help you. Let them get you back to a place where you can actually flourish in life again. And there's a happy ending to that particular story. Wait, Rick, before you continue that soundbite, I have to interrupt. Something struck me. This person is attributing, the person you were trying to help, was attributing her mental state to Satan, and you're saying unequivocally, even though she's a Christian, that it was not. Yes. How are you so sure it isn't Satan or his minions at work? Why in the New Testament, whenever there's demon possession, it looks like a lot of mental illnesses? Well, it looks the same, but it's not the same, and that's the key. You know, demon possession is an entirely different subject. So mental illness is not Satan's minions at work in your mind. If you are, honestly, if you are a Bible-believing Christian and you have God and God's Spirit working with you, those things can't touch you. But what can touch you is your own physical maladies. You know, we're, we're all in some ways ill, okay? Mentally ill, physically ill, we're all broken because we're all in sin. So unequivocally, when you have somebody who is really working hard at following God and following the footsteps of Jesus, no, Satan is not going to be inside of your head doing these things to you. It just won't happen that way. When you saw demon possession in Scripture, it was never in, in the followers of Christ. Know, know that, okay? So, yes, I was very emphatic. I told the psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist breathed this incredible sigh of relief like, thank you, now we can go to work. So, no. We have to be understanding of this unequivocally. Satan has no place in the, in the mind of a Christian. Okay, let's get back to Jane and Joan. Just want to quote something and that Rick. a young person, 12-year-old, who's got anxiety and depression said, uh, said to us. Um, and he's working through it, and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very tough—he's been in a tough spot for a while. But he said— I don't want to be somebody who has anxiety and depression. I don't want to be that. What do you do with that? What's your response to that? This is Joan. I broke my foot about a year and a half ago. And I would like to say to that child that just like a physical illness of my broken foot, every day I will help you. Just like Jane helped me with my exercises. Every day if you need it, I will help you with baby steps. This is Jane. I'd like to say for anxiety and depression at age 12, with confidence, I I can just about say um, you don't have to be that person forever. For someone like Joan who got that terrible fracture, she's got that little bit of aches and pains when, when it rains or snows. 
So we don't always have to be that person. We can just be a person who things happen to us, but they don't always have to be permanent. And we can get through it and we can get through it together. This is Joan. Anything that has happened in my life is a gift. I'm alive. It's happening. I am going to even become inventive on ways on how I can deal with this. So when people have had anxiety and depression, especially at a young age, there's most likely trauma. And that could be a gift. You know, as a matter of fact, that's one of the things that we were talking about with this 12-year-old was, you know, one day you're going to be able to recognize and help somebody else because he is going through the work and he's working really hard and he's making really great progress and he's learning the steps and he's learning the tools that he's being taught through the social work and everybody else. And so there can be a really bright future for people who go through anxiety and depression. Absolutely. Absolutely. So when it comes to uh, young children, how do you know that the kid isn't doing this just for attention or that something is really wrong? Maybe they're just ill-behaved. Yeah, you know, when it comes to children and it comes to adults, you have to ask the exact yeah, Even adults question. can become ill-behaved. It's <laughs> well, a look at me. This is a real, you know, it can be a big spotlight because yeah. I get all the attention. It's a vortex. Yeah, and, and we do have to be careful about those kinds of things. Again, in my own limited experience, one of the things I've found out, I had an experience um, at, at one point trying to help somebody through issues. And it turned out that as we were trying to help this individual, we were going down these roads that just didn't seem quite right, but we're going because we don't know how else to help. We finally got the right kind of help in place. And it was revealed that the roads we had been going down weren't the best roads. And so there was an attention-getting kind of thing going on. Now, whether it was conscious or not, forget it. I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to assume it wasn't. But the point is that once you learn what's real, and again, you get professional help to learn that. Then you stand behind that professional help and continue to help and encourage through their approach, through their eyes, through their actions, through their suggestions. So figuring that out can be difficult with kids or adults. And what I would say is go slowly, assume the best whenever you can, and have that sense of, checking it out afterwards. Always be willing to check. and but, but always assume the best. You know, when somebody is struggling like this, it's so important to give them that, that, that sense of being lifted up. And even if, even if you're erring on the side of maybe too much attention and, and a little bit of manipulation, I would rather do that honestly to be able to encourage them and then be able to figure it out later so that I can still be in their corner, so to speak. So I don't know that I really answered that too well, but it's difficult. That's really, really hard. But don't let it deter you from being an encouragement. So, Jonathan, we want to we begin to wrap this up now. God knows who we are. He knows every state of mind and heart we go to, and he also knows what we're made of. Literally, he knows what we're made of. God can and will help us manage our challenges if we're compliant and we do our part. Finally, Psalm 139, verses 19 through 24, and then we're going to wrap up. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred, and they have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Search me, O God, know my heart, try me, know my anxious thoughts. When we become vulnerable like that, we can certainly seek for help. So as we wrap this up, the whole point today, folks, has been to give you a real strong factual education on on anxiety and depression, a lot of the ins and outs, so that we can really understand what's real and the fact that we can do something about it, that we can be helpful, that we can be available, that we can get behind those who know how to do the things that we don't know how to do. Don't try to fix somebody, but help them get the help that they need. Julie, our final strength for the journey. God's help and protection is within reach. We need to acknowledge our issues, seek support, and do our part. Always open to his leading, and we can find peace. And that's really what everybody looks for. We all want peace in our lives. Anxiety and depression robs us of such things. But through medication, through uh, medical science, through therapy, be it talk therapy or uh, the cognitive behavioral therapy or all kinds of different things through faith, through friends, through family, through your pastor, through fellowship, all of these things combined can help us to deal with something that looks like it's impossible. And left to our own devices, generally it is. So folks, we're, we're, we're begging you to look at this with the eyes of understanding and compassion and say, maybe there are people in my life that I can be helpful to. Maybe I'm the one who needs help. And maybe we can reach out to one another and say, hey, I can be here for you. I don't know how, I don't know what, but I know I want to encourage you and I want to help you find the kind of help that you need. Thank you so much, Jane and Joan, for your incredible participation and knowledge here. We really appreciate it. Folks, think about this, put it in order. Depression and anxiety don't have to short-circuit your Christianity. Think about it. Folks, listen, we do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback. Send us your questions on this episode or other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, part two. Does my anxiety or depression invalidate my Christianity? We're going to be interviewing Kylie Odetta. You don't want to miss this. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.